why people leave God, the church. Um, and we've acknowledged that real harm has been done by the church. Real harm has been done by people in the name of God or the Bible. And one issue we have to ask ourselves is whether the intent of these things is to truly cause harm. Now, I certainly can't speak for every church, but I know that some churches seem to do harm in, in, in what they're doing. It's still really hard to trust a Bible or God. Some say this, you know, because you, you look at what has been done like in Crusades or, or slavery and a host of other evils in the name of God. Timothy Paul Jones, an author, addressed this topic, and his reply was this. Well, my answer is the Beatles' White Album. <laughs> As we all know, the Beatles' White Album, especially the song Helter Skelter, was used by Charles Manson as an excuse for the Manson murders. He felt like the White Album was calling him to commit all of these murders, and yet nobody has ever indicted Paul McCartney for these murders. And the reason that they haven't is because of the fact that the misuse of the White Album doesn't reflect on its creator. Just because the White Album was misused doesn't mean the creator of it was at fault. And I think we have to help people recognize that. The Bible is used to justify terrible things, but was it rightly used for these things? I think there's some truth in that. And such reasoning has some validity. And as part of our understanding, as we have addressed, uh, we're going to address a total of nine reasons that people punt on God or the church. Now, I've already talked about six of them. And they are political affiliation has been fused with Christianity. Some will say none of the people in church are my kind of people. Hear that often. Christianity is about faith and ideal with facts and reason, uh, facts and science. The church is not improving the community. It's irrelevant. The church spews hate. It's narrow-minded and filled with hypocrites. And the church did not help me in my time of need. Those are the first six. So we've got three more to finish out today, so let's get at it. The next one is, I don't need Jesus, and I'm doing fine without him. I don't need Jesus, and I'm doing fine without him. This objection gets to this area of need. I have my health. All of my bills are paid. I've got cash in the bank. My family is intact. Why would I want to disrupt that? All right? Well, something about Christianity. I am happy. And on the surface, that seems like a rational choice. I was listening to a podcast recently, and the uh, couple guys were interviewing Adam Sandler. And the interviewer said, Adam, you've got lots of money. Your daughters love you. You're popular. So you're a happy guy. I mean, what more do you need, right? And I'm sure he's a great guy, and I wish him well. But, you know, being unaware of a need is not the same as not having one. I've really got something going on that I'm not aware of. You know, our little grandson had a little spot right behind his knee on his bone. It was on a growth plate, so he immediately recognized it and 
couldn't walk, was crying, and it let us know right away. But if that infection would have been maybe mid-bone or mid-leg, would have never known, and he'd have been in serious trouble. And was in the hospital for two weeks, surgery to take care of it. And it's like an infection or cancer. You might be unaware, you might even feel no pain. But testing reveals something serious is going on. So seeing my needs, my needs through the eyes of comfort and circumstances may not be the whole picture. Consider a marriage. I've experienced this, and I'm sure some of you have. You know, you're rolling along, had no conflict in a while, uh, seemed like things are going good, and then your spouse out of the blue says, man, I just don't feel connected. I feel like, you know, we've really got an issue going on here. I'm like, what? We haven't argued, right? I mean, what's the deal? Your spouse feels distant, neglected, and you've been blind to the relationship underneath the circumstances. So my point is merely this, that sometimes our self-evaluation is fallible, right? We can all make mistakes and miss what's going on under the hood and miss those fundamental issues. It's kind of like the guy who several years ago was in Illinois, walked around for two days unaware that he had shot himself in the head with a nail gun. He thought the nail had just skinned his head because he he had a small cut. But feeling sick, he went to the hospital, found the nail had lodged itself sideways in the center of his brain, just millimeters from a section that controls the motor function. So I'm thinking of this. If, If you can have a nail in your head and not know about it, I'm just guessing that maybe I, not, I may not be all aware of needs within my heart that I can miss some of the indicators. I'll tell you what would be great. It'd be great if you had kind of a, an x-ray machine that could look at the soul, could pinpoint foundational issues, and prescribe just the right treatment. Allow me to submit to you that there is a soul x-ray appliance that can see inside, that can shine a light on exactly what is needed. Here's some wisdom about that. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the more we embrace God's perspective, the more we can benefit from the insights, his insights into our lives. The fact is, we all do this. I do this. You know, we gauge our well-being based on maybe some sign, outward sign of success, health, outward strength, accomplishment. You're rolling along, so me and God, we're good. Everything's cool. Here's some wisdom. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, 
it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. The wisdom and strength of men will not have the final word, whether it's politics, military, even the running of countries. And men are foolish to think that their salvation is in themselves. Those who fear God learn where their hope come from and how their hope is sustained. Oh, taste and see, we just sang about it, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Now, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. When I read that, I, and I can remember thinking about that, well, now, wait a minute. Have no lack, really, Lord? Have no lack. I'm not sure I have everything. Have no lack? I mean, does this mean that people who fear God have no need, that there's no loss? I mean, we're not immune to the effects of living in this world. Nevertheless, we have this promise of God's provision and protection. It's true that we don't experience full healing or blessing in this life. Heaven will give us that, all right? Yet the signs of goodness are still here. I mean, what does this passage say? Taste and see... What is it? The Lord is good. The Lord is good in his, it's more than his benefits. It's the Lord is good in himself. The person, the relationship. I mean, when we taste him, relate to him, there is this filling. I mean, look at Jesus and his followers. I ask you this. Did they have a life of ease? Did they have negative circumstances? Of course they did. Is there anybody here who would say Jesus was not filled? That Jesus didn't quite understand what was going on? He's missing the boat somehow. No. Or how about the apostles? They all had hardship. They were found in knowing God and doing his will. That's where this blessing came. And Paul puts it this way. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So whether I live or I die, I still have Christ. And in that, I have everything. To have Christ is everything. To lack Christ is to lack everything. Thus, those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So here's the word to, the, uh, to those who have the world by the tail. I mean, things are going along. I got the promotion. Got the house almost paid for. Got the car I want. Got the wife. Got the kids. Okay? Life is great. I'm happy. And that's all there is. Well, let me just suggest this. You are looking at the low-hanging fruit. Nothing wrong with that. God bless you if you have those things. Praise God for those things. Enjoy those things. But the real pleasures, the, this filling, this what life is all about, 
It's about understanding the source of that fruit and looking up. The creator offers a love and a strength and a relationship that this earth cannot provide. I just don't want us to be beguiled by settling for less. It's not that those things are bad, just don't settle for less. Here's one. I got a feeling I can get a lot of amens at this one. The church is just interested in money. You ever hear this? <laughs> of course you have. All of us have heard this one. The church is just interested in money. Maybe the easiest of the criticisms to address because we have so many examples. I know of a church where they had multiple offerings in the service, a small church where the pastor would have people count the offering and redo the offering because it wasn't enough. Three or four times offering. Wow, dude, that's a little overkill, all right? I mean, when you accentuate the money at the expense of other aspects of the Christian life, that's a problem. Pastors who harangue a church over money, I mean, I'm certainly not dismissing that notion. It happens. It's egregious. It's a problem. I think I can say this to you honestly. And for those of you that are visiting, I hope this doesn't come off as arrogant, but I'll just say it anyway. That doesn't happen here. The criticism I get about money here, and many of you could say this, I don't talk about it enough. That's a criticism we get here. So if people accuse me of talking too much about money, well, I know there's something else going on because objectively, that's not the case. Consider what one financial institution discovered. Everyone knows that there's a few hot buttons that people hate to talk about, you know, uh, religion, health, politics, death. But when it comes to the most difficult conversation you can possibly have, there's a survey from Wells Fargo that found one clear winner, and that was money. Money landed at the top, said Karen Wimbish for the Charlotte, North Carolina-based bank. She said, I don't know that we expected that. In fact, 44% of Americans point to personal finances as the most challenging chat anyone could have. Even the topic of death was below that one at 38%. So not only do we have difficulty talking about it, but I would also submit this, that our society suffers from an enormous problem of wealth envy, right? Wealth envy. I've done it. You've done it. We all do it. And we live in a culture that seems to put that as the sin qua non, the top thing that I look at, the climax of life, wealth. You know, Jesus had to confront a church about this, a church that was all screwed up in how they were viewing their wealth. And he addressed their attitudes and said this, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered. And check this out, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes. So that you can see it properly, so you can see what's really going on. So can we not recognize that we are susceptible having our perspectives 
hampered not seeing our real internal needs when we have all of our material needs met. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But having an overflow of material needs is not the absolute measurement of our spiritual life. And we have to be honest that we live in a culture that doesn't realize this. And so often we're unaware of the state of our hearts. Hey, does the Bible really talk about money? Well, I'm not going to get into it specifically, but did you know this, that there are well over 2,000 passages in the Bible about money and material possessions? 16 of the 38 parables of Jesus Christ deal with money. More is said in money than prayer. More is said about money than heaven and hell combined. Wow. I mean, once a person has accepted that their job is to handle money as a steward from God, all right, they will not fret the few times it's talked about. I can still recognize when it's manipulative, when it's overbearing, but I can still joyfully hear when the Word of God addresses the topic. So it makes sense to me, at least, that if I don't like talking about money and I live in this culture that is so pervasive about wealth, that I'm going to have a hard time whenever churches talk about it. In fact, I, uh, when we first moved into this building, it's been well over 10 years, I remember the people that do this for a living and help churches you know, build and raise money for it. They said, well, first of all, you're going to lose people. I said, why? We're building a new building. No, you will lose people. It happens in every church. Whenever they ask people, hey, we want to build a building, they feel like God is wanting to do it, and we're going to ask for money, every church is going to lose people. And so we were expecting, and they, you know, they gave a certain percentage, and we lost a few people, and just a handful, but certainly not a lot in, uh, under what he thought. But isn't that weird? It's just because you're bringing up the topic and you're you know, asking for it and challenging people don't like it, they leave. But that's, that's the way it is. And again, the culture is so pervasive with it. So, you know, it's kind of like this. If you lived in a, uh, let's say, a city where there's porn shops on every corner, well, you probably wouldn't be surprised that, you know, people have a problem with porn. If I lived in a city in my, in my hometown, the uh, Leary, Ohio, the, the downtown is nothing but bars now. You know, the steel mills are gone. It's a ghost town. Downtown is just nothing but bars. No surprise, alcoholism goes up. That shouldn't surprise anybody. The abundance of advertising and emphasis in our culture on material consumption saturates our society. In fact, college freshmen were asked what they considered to be an essential item to them for life. And number one was to be well off. Number four was to have a meaning to life. <laughs> that cracks me up. Number one, meaning of life is number four. Money is number one. I mean, that says it all right there. Wow. So it helps us to understand why there's so much anxiety when, you know, when the markets fluctuate like they do in our culture. We seem so stretched thin. Many have, you know, credit debt that just exceeds where they should be. 
My point, though, is not to make anybody feel guilty about having money or, you know, any of that. But it's just to understand that it's not about what I have. It's how passionate I am and how tightly I hold on to it. And really, the, one of the best ways to know that is how easy it is for you to be generous. It's a good medicine for materialism is how easy it is I can give it away family, friends, minister, whatever it is. So I don't want you to feel guilty about having what you have. I think that's great. But being grateful, okay, can fuel generosity and motivates us to be better stewards of God's resources. Let me just stop right here and say, you guys have been unbelievably awesome. These last four months, I got to tell you, when it first started, you know, talking to other pastors like, "Eh, I'm not sure how this is going to be, you know, we're not going to be able to meet, and giving will be down, and attendance is down, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be real problems for the church. So, you know, we cut our budgets big time, kind of ready for the fall. And you know what's happened? Well, certainly attendance is down, but giving has gone up. Now explain that. I just say to you, thank you. You've been so generous, so thoughtful, so encouraging, and I just can't thank you enough for how you have responded to all this. So it just truly blesses me, and I just love being your pastor, especially when you give. But other than that, I don't. But other than <laughs> Janet's probably go home and say, why did you say that? They're going to think you really do mean it. No. They know that I'm sarcastic most of the time. So, all right. Churches are unfriendly to those who express doubt. Churches are unfriendly to those who express doubt. Uh, there is an attitude within some churches, you cannot question the pastor uh, or any spiritual authority, you cannot ask questions. To doubt something that's taught comes off as insubordination. To ask questions about it, man, it's out of bounds. And then, to actually maybe doubt what is said in the Bible, whoo, dude, can't do that, okay? Definitely out of bounds. Let me ask you this. If, if a church is created as a, a learning community, at least that's part of it, that, that we learn together, will not doubts be a part of that? Will that not spring forth some of our questions? And as we learn, we can mature and we can grow in our faith? I think so. I think so. A few years ago, the staff at the New York Public Library discovered a box of cards that contained Questions posed to the librarian by members of the public. The telephone, Ask a Librarian Service, it was started in 1967, and it still operates today. Surprisingly, the New York Public Library receives 30,000 calls a year with this. Helpline manager Rosa Caballero said people have been reaching out to librarians for as long as there have been libraries. Oftentimes, people do not have access to the technology at home, and I think... Some just want somebody to talk to. So here's some of the questions discovered on the cards, okay? First, what does it mean when you dream you're being chased by an elephant? (laughs) You ask your librarian for that, all right? Okay, whatever. Uh, Here's another one. Why, Why do 18th century English paintings have so many squirrels in them? I didn't know that that was actually a thing, but apparently it is. All right. Here's another one. If a poisonous snake bites itself, will it die? Aaron, what will happen? (laughs) 
Oh, I stand corrected. Here's another one. Somebody early on was looking for Charles Darwin's book, Oranges and Peaches. The librarian politely directed the person to on the origin of species. <laughs> Cabarillo says, there are no stupid questions. Well, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but, uh, she goes on and says, everything is a teachable moment. We don't embarrass people. We try to answer any questions they have with honesty. We try to refer them to appropriate resources that they might find useful. You know what? I don't think that's a bad posture for a church, right? Feel free to ask questions. Here's a passage worth underlining. Jude 1.22 instructs us, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Isn't that good? Kind of says it all. In his book, Stories for the Journey, William White shares the story of Hans, a European seminary professor devastated by the death of his wife, Enid. Hans was so overcome with sorrow that he lost his appetite. He didn't want to leave his house. And out of concern, the seminary president, along with three other professors, paid Hans a visit. And the grieving professor shared that he's really suffered with doubt. He said, I'm no longer able to pray to God. He admitted to his colleagues, in fact, I'm, I'm not certain I believe in God anymore. Drop that one to four seminary guys. And after a moment of silence, the seminary professor said, or the, the president said, then we will believe for you. We will pray for you. The four men continued to meet daily for prayer asking God to restore the gift of faith to their friend. And some months later, as the four friends gathered to pray with Hans, Hans smiled and said, it's no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Today, I want to pray with you. With you. Hmm. You know, the beauty of that story it's like that story of Jesus, like having friends take their friend and move the thatch from the roof and just lay him down at the feet of Jesus. I know you can't do that yourself, but we'll do that for you. Put you at his feet. And that's what we can do to people who doubt. Just listen. Just listen. You don't need to open up your mouth. Just listen. I'm not advocating permanently staying in doubt about God, but that with humility and honesty, inquiring is a step to robust faith. Doubt is a part of that. It's one reason we do periodically Q&A after a sermon. I think an inquiring mind is a step to mature Faith. You know, we've looked at nine of these objections. And I think it tells us that there's pain out there of people who've been to church. And I just want to tell you, I get it. 
I've been paying myself, and I'm supposed to lead one, all right? You're heard. And I think it's beneficial for us, you know, who are here to know, number one, you just can't be dismissive, right? We hear them. We listen. You don't chastise people. And hearing the doubts often causes me to think of when I hear students in a philosophy class talk about these kind of things and they throw things up, especially when a philosopher talks without the idea of God and trying to create meaning and morals and all this stuff. Man, you know what, I, what happens to me after teaching it now for you know, almost 20 years? My faith is strengthened. I'm so thankful for God's word, for a God who has created a world with a moral order. I don't understand it all, but I hang my hat on that, that there's a God who exists. And he has put some ground rules down that flow from his character that's depicted in this book. Now, whether or not I express that to everybody I come to who has a question depends on a, a number of factors. But what I want to do with you is to just be aware that we don't have to be afraid of the questions. We can know when we investigate ourselves, it can strengthen our faith and that we can have an inviting community for people with doubts, with objections about God and the church, and that that's okay that wherever you're at, you may not have all the answers, that's okay. And if I were to be honest with you, there are times I struggle too. Maybe I shouldn't tell you that as a pastor, but I don't think that surprises really most anybody. Listen, be humble. Let's lead with love when it comes to these doubts.